As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on. And Lewis Hamilton made history in the Eiffel Grand Prix at the Nürburgring by taking his 91st Grand Prix victory, equaling Michael Schumacher's record Formula One race wins. And in doing so, he's got one hand on the World Championship thanks to Mercedes teammate Valtteri Bottas's retirement. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me on a day that will go down in history are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Mark, hello. 91, that's a, that's a big number, isn't it? I mean, you've, you've covered every single one, I think, of Hamilton's victories. It's just amazing when you stand back and think about it, isn't it? Yeah, 91 in, thir- what's it, 13, 13 years? Um, so, yeah, just, it, it's, Daniel Ricciardo was talking about it and saying, I just can't even conceive that number, you know, how, how many races that, you, you, that's like five years solid, even if you won them all. You so that that sort of scale is it's yeah it's just immense isn't it yeah just one of those amazing achievements i must admit i think it was one of those records we never thought we broken scott mitchell as ever you are watching on from stockholm and obviously yeah you've uh, you've covered a few less of hamilton's victories but it's been uh it's been plenty of them while you've been covering formula one and and these days are are kind of magical aren't they because even though you know you're not cheering anyone on but when any whenever anyone breaks one of these records it is it is great to have the chance to be kind of involved. Yeah, I think um, I, I understand why sort of the domination is is sort of stale, especially if you're watching as a fan. Um, I'm sure when Michael was racking up the majority of his 91 wins, a lot of the people who were watching that at the time were sort of thinking, oh, I'd really like it if he would stop doing this. So I can understand why it gets boring, but I just think like when it actually happens... You can't lose sight of the enormity of the achievement because, as Mark was saying, like it's just, it's just an astonishing number, and it is quite funny to think that I've, in the three years or so that I that I've been covering it, I've seen Hamilton win more races than most drivers will ever win in their entire career. That is, just, he's just a 
the Hamilton Mercedes juggernaut just seems to show no signs of um, of, of ever stopping. And what, uh, uh, as you mentioned in in the introduction, this is another big step towards the title, and it's it's just pretty amazing to see not one but well, not one but certainly two of Schumacher's once absolutely outlandish statistical records are going to be equaled in the same season a few weeks apart. And just to put that number into a little bit more context, only 87 drivers have started 91 World Championship races since the World Championship started in 1950. So that's uh, that's quite something. Uh, we'll we'll appraise Hamilton a little bit more in a minute. But but Scott, you heard what Hamilton had to say, not just in the post-race press conference, but the, the later one when he's always quite insightful and reflective, isn't he, in his in his later sessions when he's had a bit more time to think about things and for everything to sink in. So h- how does he sort of really feel about this? Do you get a sense that he's got that same feeling of 91? Wow, that's that's quite something. Yeah, I think so. I, I'd, I really wish we could embed some of that Sunday evening audio into this podcast because Lewis has this, I don't know what you two think, but Lewis has this incredible trait of being able to come up with the most sincere thoughtful um ideas and, and and comments and then you see them written down in black and white and he just comes across as a bit of an idiot like he comes across like he's just being disingenuous or he's being smug and he and I genuinely have in three or four years of listening to him in person or as we have to do at the moment over zoom like I never find him anything other than sincere really I don't think he's ever really been flippant or glib or anything like that so he was in one of those moods this uh, th- this evening. He was very reflective. You could see that the um, the scale of the achievement was something that he was still coming to terms with. It was it was clearly something post race that he, it was all happening in his head at once. And then by the time we got to speak to him properly, he'd already done. He must have done an hour or so's worth of media across you know the television stuff and the FIA press conference. And then he finally came and and had his sit down with with the written media and. He sort of talked about he talked about his place in F1 history and basically saying that that's not his priority. He has so much respect for the legends of the past and he wants someone like Max Verstappen to go on and beat his record because he thinks it would be the wrong attitude otherwise to, to think, oh no, I never want this to be broken. Like he wants the next generation to go out and, and achieve something amazing as well. Um, he talked about that it's the off-track stuff as a person and sort of with his friends and family, that that's what he wants to be remembered for. That's the most important thing to him. The on-track success isn't what defines him. Um, But he also talked about um, everyone's going to have their opinion over sort of which era was greatest and who was the greatest driver. He's immensely proud of the role that he feels he's played within Mercedes to make them such a dominant force, which is, you know, I would never say that, um, he's got it easier or anything like that. But of course he would not have 91 wins if Mercedes wasn't the operation that it is. But Hamilton is a key part of that. So it's really interesting. He's talked about um, needing a few days probably in the, in the coming week to really, I guess with, with his family, with some friends or even on his own, just sort of sit down and actually process what this means because he's not a, I don't believe he's a statistical driven driver, certainly not, before a race or during a race so I think it I think he does genuinely need to take some time afterwards to actually think right what milestone have I hit this time and what does it actually mean to me but I think this 
does mean to him. I think you saw when um, Mick Schumacher handed over the 2012 Michael Crash helmet after the race by way of honouring Hamilton's achievement. I think you could see that Lewis was genuinely moved by that and he did seem to be, even by the time we spoke to him later on, and he'd had lots of practice of talking to people and saying what he thought, he was really struggling to put it into words. I think it was genuinely quite emotional for him. Mark, you'd have been there when Michael Schumacher set and broke various records. And obviously there, there were a few times when he achieved things and appeared to have quite, quite, quite a profound effect on him in the same way as it, it does Lewis. This seems to be the way, doesn't it? In that nobody sat there thinking, oh, I want to equal this record and, oh, I've, I've achieved that aim. It's, it's more a, a result of success and the individual wins, isn't it? Obviously they all they all add up. But what do you remember of when, when Schumacher was hitting some of these landmarks? Is it similar kind of feeling? Yeah, I mean, it was when he um, when he equaled Senna's record, which wasn't the all-time record at the time, um, Monza in 2000. He was very emotional. Um, it's, I think, these statistics are just things that are that, that, that are happening until it's a big one suddenly hits them, and then it suddenly the the marker just rips them out of the moment, and places them into a, a perspective that you, they, they never have time to really contemplate or it, it's, it's, it would be, it'd be the wrong thing to contemplate when you're in the middle of trying to achieve. And I think even, even Lewis sort of recognizes the, 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 the enormity of this one. And I mean, if he wins one more um, and surpasses Schumacher's record, and goes on to win the title, he is then legitimately the most successful driver of all time. Um, and he's still not under contract, which is um, quite intriguing, isn't it? And I, I honestly don't believe that there's anything more to it than they haven't got around to doing the contract yet. But it it does, it, it is an incredible situation for him to be in, to be you know, breaking these records and probably set to soon become the most successful driver of all time and um he's not signed up to his team for next year yeah it's quite an odd situation there isn't it he's he's there with nico hulkenberg and sergio perez not sure about what maybe not quite the same but what uh, a one lineup that is (laughs) (laughs) that'd be very quick yeah yeah very quick have to have to be a uh, p1 lineup you're not going to have a a silver or bronze in that lineup are you but yeah it's it's always difficult isn't it because the statistics in themselves they don't mean nothing, but they don't mean everything. It doesn't. If you get the most wins, the most championships, it doesn't automatically mean you're the greatest ever. And all of these arguments that go on, kind of in the background about it. But it, for a driver to be at that level for that long, so what's this? Fourteen seasons now. He's won races every single season, and it hasn't always been easy. Despite what uh, uh, what some people might think, you know, winning in the two thousand and nine McLaren, for example, was uh, was no mean feat. Yes, it got better, but he had to lift the car as well. So he is one of those drivers that, yeah, he's he's in the Mercedes, he's in the dominant force. But, you know, Valtteri Bottas, who's a very, very good driver in their three and a half seasons together, hasn't actually won that many races. So that does put it into context, Scott, doesn't it? That this ability to be a winning machine at this level in elite sport, anybody who just thinks you just turn up, sit in the car and it happens is uh, is, is diminishing the uh, the effort and the skill it takes, aren't they? Yeah, and I think the best example of that is Nico Rosberg because it took so much out of him that he, he quit. He 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 didn't he didn't want to go through it again because of the 
the shit, the the the, the drain on him and, and and everything he had to go through just to be put it all on the line, and he did that once. And Hamilton has. Uh, and you can argue that it's easier because Hamilton is fundamentally better than, than Rosberg. So maybe Hamilton doesn't have to push himself to such extremities in psychologically, mentally, however you want to put it. But I think that is sort of simplifying it way too much. Oh, Hamilton's so great that this is easy easy for him. Um, I wanted to, because obviously we were talking about sort of what Hamilton thinks about this, I, I wanted to just sort of grab a line from what he, uh, what he told us on Sunday evening because... He 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 was asked like, do you are you able to comprehend at this moment that you're rewriting history? Um, which I thought I remember when I, the question was asked, I just thought that must that is such an awkward question to get because the whole time you're answering these questions, the questions are fundamentally why are you so good? Oh, aren't you so brilliant? Which is sort of quite an awkward thing to be faced with. But this was a proper this like this is a history defining moment you're rewriting history and he and so lewis said um it's a very very hard idea for me personally i can only speak from my experience but it's really hard to compute that and put it into reality and the meaning i still watch other people who are legends and in other sports who are chasing historic moments and titles and records that were broken by great legends in the past it's different to watching it from the outside to being in it and i think i think that's amazing because I cannot, for the life of me, comprehend what it would be like to be the best at something, let alone the best ever. And I just think it it might seem like just another win. It was just another race where Lewis was better than Bottas and he kept a Red Bull at arm's length. And the circumstances might have been exactly what he's used to and he's done countless times over the last few years, but it's just not. It's, it really is not just another win, is it? No, and that's, that's why we have to kind of talk about it. Sometimes we get a little bit of criticism that we talk too much about Hamilton, but how, how can you cover Formula One in this area without talking about him a, a, a fair amount? And I think it's really important. Yes, I think we'd all have rather more of these wins recently have been cut and thrust wheel-to-wheel battles with Max Verstappen or whoever. Uh, they haven't been, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't recognise this achievement. The shame, same with Michael Schumacher, same with Alan Prost. And, you know, that that's the league that Lewis Hamilton is in now isn't he mark and we we have to actually appreciate it because in you know 20 years time people will be saying well well people will be saying whoever's being brilliant then everyone will say oh he's not as good as lewis hamilton you know that was that was proper back then when f1 was good now it's terrible you know you've got you've got to appreciate it at the time even if it's not necessarily that the greatest race uh, ever which it certainly wasn't today yeah and I, I used to hear the same in the in the schumacher era and the the, the other thing is that I think which is maybe clouding people's judgment of the scale of his achievement is that the wins aren't, he disappears off into the distance like um, some of the greats of the past did, but that's not him. That is the the format of the sport now. That's not how you run races now. You can't run a race like that because there may be a safety car and it punches the field up and then you're on the old old tyres and you're going to get zapped. So... That is just not how races are run now. It's all controlled. Um, the pace is controlled. Your gaps are controlled, and that's how how well you do that. It, it, it's a it's a reflection of combining pace with um, tire usage, and that is the core skill. And he is absolutely brilliant at that. Um, I was talking to 
James Allison recently, who you know worked closely with Michael at both Benetton and Ferrari, and subsequently, of course, with Lewis at Mercedes. And he won't be drawn on you know who he thinks is better, but he said that their skills were quite different, but probably only because the demands were different, not not because they intrinsically said. For example. Lewis is 10 times as good at looking after tyres as Michael was, but Michael didn't need to. So how good would Michael have been at looking after tyres if he'd needed to? Um, and he, he said that, you know, if he, had to, if he had to play the parlour game and say who could actually do a, quick, a qualifying lap, he said he would probably think Lewis would probably shade that, but he, he, he wasn't convinced. Um, Sebastian Vettel tonight has just said, for me, Michael's still the absolute greatest um i've never seen anyone like him i've never seen anyone with the the, the raw talent that he had so it's it's close enough that they 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 they're being talked of in the the same breath by people who know them um who have worked with them um and who've been in a position to to see them sort of in the nitty gritty below the surface so yeah so there's always um a perspective when you're close up to to underestimate um, what what you're looking at and to underestimate its significance and, and it becomes clearer in, in time and you know that, that will happen for sure that will happen when um, Lewis's legacy is considered in the future yeah, and I imagine that there will be plenty of considering his legacy over time. Uh, we won't talk too much more about about him on this podcast, but it was important to, to mark uh, that achievement and of course, there'll come a point where I'll break the record, which is perhaps even more uh, impressive than uh, than equaling it. Uh, so, Mark, let's just have a look, a look at the race. I've said this before to you, but again, relatively straightforward in terms of Hamilton's win over Verstappen, obviously with a complicating factor of, of, of Bottas. Yes. Um, I mean, Valtteri didn't the, did the, got the first two bits right. He set pole. Um, he came out on top in that little scuffle through turns one and two on the first lap. So he, he'd done the first two bits right. Um, all he had to do then was sort of keep keep Lewis um, at a distance and uh, not overuse the tyres. And that was the concern going into the race about the, the cold temperatures. Were, was the graining of the, the front left going to be um, defining what you could do strategically? And of course, Lewis is, um, as we talked about earlier on, fantastic at... at doing that at combining that um looking after the tires with good pace so that was Valtteri's challenge and it was quite well you know nicely poised and Lewis once he'd lost out in that scuffle had then sort of um, gone to plan b which was to try and run longer than Valtteri in that first stint and that's how it was all poised and then of course um Valtteri locked up and that you know well well before the planned first stop window and badly flat spotted his tire so that that really took him out of the equation. And um, even though uh, Lewis didn't get to run as long as he was going to run because there was then a, a VSC um, only about three laps after Valtteri's incident, uh, it's it still that bottom, the, 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 the 11 seconds or whatever it is that you, you get from doing a, a stop under the VSC rather than a, you know, at full racing speed. So it, it didn't really help. Even that didn't help Valtteri. So, uh, yeah, Lewis was all set, really. Um, it was just a question of whether he's going to do it on a one-stop and a two, and that was decided later on by the um, the safety car for George Russell's accident. So, yeah, um, quite a straightforward race in the end once once Valtteri had um, made it easy for him. 
And of course, Verstappen upgraded Red Bull, working well. He was there, but he, he never looked like he was going to quite be able to, to mount the challenge despite being second and getting fastest lap. Yeah, he had a little nibble at him around one of the, the, the pit stops. Um, the, the Mercedes pit stops this weekend weren't um, very quick because they were compromised by um, missing key members from tested positive for COVID. So they had to sort of reserve people in there. So they, they hadn't worked together. So it was all, you know, they took the pressure off them and they, they made sure that they had plenty of cushion. So they did a, I think they went into the stop with a five seconds over max and they came out with um two and a half after it all settled down but it was it was okay um that was really that was about it i mean max had a little nibble at him on the first lap of course when he when he had a snap of oversteer um trying to go around the outside of valtteri and almost created an opportunity for, for max but that was it really the the car was losing a couple of tenths down the straights um Max was making it up in the corner, but you, you, at that stage, Lewis probably wasn't, or, or Valtteri uh, probably weren't um, giving it everything. So I think, yeah, the, the the gap was about right. The gap, what, what we saw was about where they were at. I think um, maybe the Red Bull was a little bit flattered in qualifying because it's closest the, the Red Bulls got to them all season in qualifying. Um, I think it was maybe a little bit flattered by Mercedes not quite finding the sweet spot of the tyres as well as Red Bull had. But yeah, I think um, it, it'd be nice to think this was the continuation of Red Bull eating into that gap and then now we, we're going to get close to parity anytime soon. But I'm, I'm not I'm yet to be convinced of that. Uh, and Scott, would you like to pick up for this episode our regular segment called Poor Old Valtteri Bottas Corner? where we have a bit of sympathy for him, because he did he did a lot of things right, but <laughs> it all just went a bit wrong, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I thought um, there was a point towards the end of the race, I think when we, you and I were talking, when it was going on, um, where I kind of thought that this was um, just the worst possible situation for, for Bottas, because he'd, he suffered sort of the worst of both worlds, because he had the mistake that he made on track that cost, that looked like it was going to cost him the win, so he'd already gone through that sort of self-berating disappointment of throwing the lead away. And then he went through the sort of second phase of pain, which is um, having having a suspected MGUH failure, which caused him to, to retire the car. So a technical problem suddenly wipes it out completely. And he's going from, oh, I've thrown away a win to I don't have any points from this. And I'm now 60, 69 points behind Hamilton. And I just thought, oh, that's, that's, that, that, that's, double frustration because you've got his mistake and then the, the technical problem but there was that element of well I guess at least he'd sort of at least thrown away the victory so maybe it was not so so bad except <laughs> because the race was a two-stop Bottas actually said afterwards he thought this actually isn't working out too bad for me because he's thrown the track position away and had to stop a little bit earlier but everyone's got to make a second stop later on and Bottas is on track and he actually feels quite good with the tyres blah 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 so actually this I can still win this. He genuinely believes he could and maybe would have won that race had it played out. But then <laughs> it's just it's just one of those days where you know that it's just going away from you because he'd nailed Hamilton in qualifying. He'd got feisty on lap one. And let's face it, that is one of Valtteri's biggest weaknesses. The opportunity he does have to go wheel to wheel with Lewis, he does tend to come off second best or maybe he doesn't even try as much as he should. Um, but he toughed it out. He got back past Lewis after briefly losing the lead. Brilliant. 
There you go. You're, you're absolutely nailing it. Then he locks up into turn one, um, throws, loses the position as Hamilton takes him around the outside into turn two. Flat spots, he's flat spotted his tyre as well, so he has to limp back to the pits. Um, gets out. Yeah, he's fairly happy. But then VSC, Verstappen and Hamilton can make their pit stops without much time loss. So even if the race then continues as normal, Valtteri is miles off and he's just never going to finish higher than third. And then the technical problem hits as well. So he just went through, I can only imagine every conceivable range of emotion that a driver can go through during a race, Valtteri went through. And for that reason, I think it's sort of the cruelest race of his very up and down season. He's shown great mental resilience at times. And I asked him after the race um, that you've shown so much mental strength. You've been able to bounce back. Like, what is your feeling at the moment? And he was basically just like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's disappointing. I need a miracle now to win the championship. But he sort of seems to be torn between being pleased with the performance that he showed and being d- demoralized, is probably a strong word, but very disappointed and gutted because, yet again, he has nothing to show for it. We should say Bottas did a great job to get pulled, didn't he? See, with Friday not happening, it, it was a, a washout sort of obviously the cars could have run but it was a fog out it was a fog out because the medical helicopter could not fly on friday so had fp1 which was fp3 rather an hour of running straight into qualifying got pulled by a quarter of a second which is a good valtteri bottas territory but yeah again he's he's such a good driver but he's just not lewis hamilton is he unfortunately so uh, just one of those things again he's the counterpoint uh the sustained brilliance of hamilton that a driver of that level in bottas just there's always just little or often just one little thing that uh that lets him down um obviously we've mentioned Verstappen there's not a great deal we can really say as usual about him except to say maybe one day we'll be talking about him getting the uh the wins record because he's still young he's already uh started chipping away with some wins and I think we uh we all expect him to win championships in the future Daniel Ricciardo on third place finally that Renault podium long awaited what do you make of that, Mark? I mean, this this has been a really good run of of performances for for Renault, hasn't it? Where it's performed crucially across a wide range of tracks. So I think this has definitively said there's very very real progress there. Yeah, it's on a high downforce track. It's first time we've had the opportunity to see it since it got better at Silverstone on a proper high downforce track, and it's yeah, it's really good. It's it's now been quick on. Low downforce, medium downforce, and high downforce. All the three packages. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, they, I mean, the, the first part, until it, they found that crucial little bit of um, rear grip at Silverstone, which then allowed them to rebalance the car, um, it was just up and down according to the circuit characteristics, and it just looked like any other Renault season of recent years. It looked you know, some, sometimes good, sometimes bad, depending on the circuit characteristics. But they are now putting together a proper, um, a proper progressing season. And um, yeah, Daniel was it was going to be close because um, before the safety car, because he was st- planning to stay out there while Perez on his. Uh, much newer tyres was chasing him down and catching quick. Um, so it was going to be very close for that third place, but then he, he, he sort of got let off the hook with a safety car because that let him come in and retain track position as well. So, yeah, it was um, it, it was very well deserved. He was he was doing a brilliant job in what he usually does so brilliantly, which is 
what Hamilton also does a brilliant is combine pace with um, not taking out a lot from the tyres. Yeah, Perez reckons that he'd have been able to catch and pass him, but of course he would say that. But Perez is one of the last people you want chasing you in that situation. He'd already built that big tyre offset by running long on the softs. And he was closing quickly, but also still managing his tyres as well. So that would have been a really interesting one. It's really hard to judge how that that could have worked. Uh, and of course, Ricardo got up into fourth place early on by passing Leclerc. Leclerc was really struggling on the soft tyres. Uh, in that race after a quite brilliant qualifying performance. He was the star of qualifying, I'd argue. But yeah, then then Ricardo came through that podium. What, what what do you make of the significance of that, Scott? Obviously, it's a, it's a landmark that that team needed, didn't it? And I, I'm quite pleased that Ricardo's been able to get it before he, he moves on. There may be more podiums this season, but it's, it, it is an important moment for a team that's had a pretty tough time over the past few years. Yeah, it is. I mean, we joked that um, it would be quite funny if uh, Daniel got overtaken because that uh, the Renault-Ricardo story is just a little bit funnier if they keep finishing fourth. Um, but I am genuinely pleased for them because, uh, well, first of all, for Ricardo because the, that move hasn't been what he hoped it would be when he gambled on leaving Red Bull. He had many, many, many millions of reasons to, to, to join Renault, but chief among them is... He, he wants to be competitive on track and it's not quite worked out and he's driven really, really well at times. So really pleased for him to to, to be the guy that, that got that job done. And also for Renault as well, because, you know, I I I always, at every opportunity, put, want to point out that they are massively, massively off their original stated targets. They set, I guess you always, you have to aim high. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, um, you know, try try and underachieve, obviously. But when they rejoined with that works team in 2016, you know, they were targeting wins in year three and a championship in year five. So according to that original time time frame, Renault should be fighting for the world title this year. And they're obviously nowhere near because they've only just scored their first podium. But whatever mistakes were made, whatever overestimations or underestimations were done in the first two or three years, I did, over the last 18 months, there has been like quite a lot of sensible work going on um and a, a lot of that happened over the course of 2019 so it was really going to be the second half of 2020 that you basically gave the modern version of Renault its final appraisal that was basically right you keep making excuses you've now made major changes at the top so this is it this is your last chance to prove that you're actually capable of doing what you keep saying you're capable of doing and actually all credit to them over the course of 2020, they've been doing a really good job. The base of the 2020 car is clearly pretty good, but they've done an excellent job developing it. They seem to be executing it really well. The one lingering question mark is still on reliability because two of the four Renault-powered cars had problems today. Cannot ignore that. That is a serious concern, and it's actually one of the reasons I think Ricardo, despite this upturn in form, won't be regretting the move to McLaren because I think he quite likes the idea of being in one of the leading midfield teams, but with a Mercedes engine in the back instead of Renault. But I, on, honestly, I've been very critical of Renault at times, but I'm pleased pleased with this. It's it's not nice to see a a big manufactured team with an enormous history and the weight of that history underperforming and not scoring podiums. And you know, Bottas retired, but so so it was inherited to, to a degree, but it was also earned. I, I don't think this was one of those fluky podiums where it's like, oh, everything aligned and that's the only reason it happened uh, you know ricardo has been knocking on the door for a long time so i think this was a, 
uh, as proper as a Class B podium can be. Yeah, well, he'd have been fourth, even if uh, Bottas had uh, had finished. Esteban Ocon was on course for uh, some points as well. He had a hydraulic failure. He was running ahead of science, and he was running long on the, the softs uh, in the first stint. But uh, yeah, that put him out. The getting was getting stuck in gear, and then the uh, the brakes went. Mark, the absentee from that battle was was Alex Albon, who obviously had a, he had a lock up on the first lap. Then he had to have an early stop because there was a lot of vibration. Uh, do you think he could still have been in that in contention for that podium? Christian Horner was arguing that that he could still have been even after that first stop. But then he had the clash taking off Daniel Kvyat's front wing and got a penalty for that, which actually never never able to serve. A, a better weekend than Russia for Albon, but still not a great one. No, not not great at all. And I was hoping he was going to build on that Mugello podium, and it's just not been happening, has it? Uh, yeah. It, you want it to go well for him. You want him to put all these good bits together. But the more often he doesn't, the more the pressure is ramping up. And then he has a silly collision with Kvyat, which you know wasn't wasn't great either. Um, would he have got the podium after that lockup and the early pit stop? He may have done. He had. I mean, he, he usually can access good race pace from the you know from what's the second best car in, in, in the field let's be honest <clears throat> so yeah he, he could possibly have done it um, it would have had to have been a mighty drive and the, 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 the crucial defining bit of his weekend was that lock up on the first lap and that's it's just yeah I mean it, it can just one of those things that can happen when you're in the middle of the pack but it always seems to be something doesn't it, it always seems to be there's just one little thing that's that, that's messed up his weekend and and on this occasion it was that yeah my my concern with alex is that the last couple of races it's the the sunday's got away from him whereas before Mugello, the 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 race recovery drives the execution of his races wasn't the problem he was just not doing the job in qualifying he was giving himself a load of work to do on sunday but he was then going out and doing that work and he was driving quite well and all of a sudden the last couple of races it's just become quite scrappy and this was I I think this was his worst uh, drive of the season I think yeah he he shouldn't have let Leclerc get ahead of him in qualifying for starters but then he got he, he lost that place to Ricardo he was I think really lucky that that the the, mis, the, the lock up that, that Mark mentioned wasn't worse because um, he quite easily just clattered into Ricardo I think he got a little bit lucky with there only being light contact and then yeah, the the clumsy move over on Kvyat. Just it was ultimately, I think it was, um, it was a hole in the radiator. I think that that ultimately ended his race. But by that point, it was all self-inflicted damage that had been done to his Grand Prix, and he was all miles out of contention, nowhere near where he should have been. And Ricardo shouldn't have been uh, doing a great job executing a podium finish, should he? Because the the pace advantage that Red Bull had over the other teams, the the second Red Bull should have been a comfortable third and I'm getting really worried for Albon actually because as Mark said you hoped he was going to build on Mugello there'd been signs before the Tuscan Grand Prix that he was starting to get a handle on stuff and things were getting better and I'm seeing a bit of regression now if, if anything and this is not the this is absolutely not the time to be showing that he, he really really needs to be doing a better job than he did today. Well that sentiment that both of you have expressed you know I've got the same feeling where you're looking at him and thinking there's a driver in there but the longer it goes on, the more worrying it is. And I imagine that is exactly the feeling there is 
uh, for Christian Horner, Helmut Marko and everyone at, uh, at Red Bull. They want it to come together, but there comes a point where it needs to really click and come together. And there's not so many races left this year now. So, yeah, the, the pressure is is building there. Hopefully he can uh, he can deliver. But there's, there's a reason why he hasn't been confirmed for next year and they've, they've got Sergio Perez and even Nico Hülkenberg if they, if they need him as, as an option should they decide they need to, to go elsewhere. But, yeah, he just needs a just needs a strong weekend, and yeah, the the Mugello podium didn't prove uh, didn't prove to be the the launching uh, pad. Uh, so we talked briefly about Perez' good run to to fourth place. Obviously, uh, a tricky weekend for for Racing Point for various reasons. We'll get on to later. McLaren, Carlos Sainz in the new spec car. He had the new spec nose with some other new bits and pieces this weekend. He wasn't uh, delighted with the the feel of the car either in the race or in, in qualifying. Uh, they had to put it on one car because they needed to start building the data. Norris was on the older spec. And Carlos Sainz finished fifth, but he described it as 60 laps of struggle, was his uh, uh, his his phrase on the race. And I think this you know good result from McLaren, but a little bit worrying, isn't it, Mark? They, they don't seem totally convinced with that package as yet. And it might just be circumstances because they haven't run it much and then Friday was ruined. But... Science didn't sound like someone who was saying, yeah, well, obviously we had to make the best of it and we'll be fine next time. He was still a little bit unconvinced and there seems to be some question mark about the about the simulation to track correlation there. Yeah, a little bit worrying because they um, really need to be committing one way or another to, because it's quite a change in aero philosophy. Um, you know, the, the, the nose is quite different and the whole way the aero flows back from there is is quite different. So, as thinking ahead to next year, they need to be pushing on now with knowing in which direction they're going to go. <clears throat> and this has just delayed that, um, you know, because if, if you're not yet convinced, you're right. The unconvinced was, was exactly how he sounded. In fact, he said, it, I think he used the word mystified after qualifying. He said, um, really not happy with it. And there's no two ways about it. The old car was quicker than the new car this weekend. So... Yeah, um, tricky. So hopefully they it, they can find the sort of ghost in the machine, whatever it is that's causing that correlation to trip them up and put a right. But yeah, not not uh, not great at the moment. Yeah, there's still time for them to find that solution. It was a bad weekend to lose the Friday. They did have two complete sets of bits and spares, so they could have run it on both cars had they wanted to. But I think they felt they could not afford to to rest that package this weekend, even if it would help things for science. And you have to say that decision paid off because he still got a, a fifth place, even if it wasn't his uh, his favourite fifth place. Lando Norris Scott did a bit of a Fernando Alonso tribute act, moaned quite a bit about the engine, justifiably so, because he had problems and then ended up sat in a deck chair. <laughs> it was quite a um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was quite a, an unusual race for, for for Lando. I think he was actually um, he was putting together one of those uh, sort of stealth stealth drives because he he was he's doing a really really good extended first stint um and it's obviously now quite difficult to plot exactly where he would have come out in relation to ricardo but he'd have been ahead of perez um and obviously it was his retirement that sparked the safety car so it would have been a genuine bit of trying to chase ricardo to to the flag and lando's pace in the older spec mclaren actually looked really good I, I thought he was um on course for a for, for a 
proper crack at, at Ricardo in the second stint. So yeah, it was a shame that it was a shame that that happened. Um, I think he gave it a good go trying to get it to the end, but obviously um, there's a big difference between being able to run around a second, a second and a half off your pace, and then all of a sudden everything's shutting down. So <laughs> he had uh, there's nothing he could do once the once it had actually cried enough. Another quite regular feature we've had this year is Pierre Gasly appreciation corner. Sixth place, another strong drive from him. A bit of everything in this one because the AlphaTauri wasn't stunning in qualifying. He was 13th at the end of the first lap, came through to six. Obviously, the retirements helped him. But just again, just Gasly's, he's so dependable now, isn't he, Mark, in that he he does all sorts of different race drives now. He's he'll, Even if the AlphaTauri isn't brilliant, he's always going to be there as long as there's not some strategy disaster or reliability problem. He's he, He's gone from the kind of slightly flaky driver at Red Bull to this utterly bankable performer AlphaTauri. Yeah, and what would he be like if he put him back in Red Bull? Would he would he maintain that? Um, but yeah, he was he was great again. Um, it looked like the hard tire that they'd put him on at the first stops was probably going to be his undoing, but he was rescued from that by the safety car. And um, yeah, again, just just a, a flawless professional drive really um bit disappointing with the car in qualifying it, it, it was difficult to know just exactly what was um, missing from it there it wasn't its usual it, it's usually pitching for you know lower q3 isn't it and, and it wasn't <clears throat> but yeah put a beautiful race together and yeah there's just nothing you can't say anything bad about gasly's season really it's it's been terrific yeah, he did say um, last time this after qualifying because quite often there have been tricky days on Friday for AlphaTauri, then Saturday they're there. So I do wonder if they were one of the ones that suffered more with the the lack of running needed to to dial the uh, dial the car in, and they were quite some way off Q three. That was the unusual thing; it wasn't sort of a tenth. It was it was they they weren't in contention at all, even with a a really strong lap. But yeah, the fine performance. Obviously, this is in the part of the field that was disrupted by that uh, by that safety car for for Norris, which did change things quite a bit. Uh, but Charles Leclerc inevitably came through with a, a seventh place behind Gasly. I think the fourth place flattered the Ferrari somewhat, uh, but a good solid result. I think you heard from the Ferrari guys after the race, didn't you, Mark? Yeah, the uh, Ferrari was saying that uh, the upgrade, the combined upgrade from Sochi and here, wasn't um, a big step, but they weren't expecting it to be. Um, there's more to come in that package in the coming races. There's, there's some more bits to come, um, and what they really needed from this weekend was to ensure that this correlated with what the simulation was saying, and that it was uh, that they were moving in the right direction. And we're quite happy that it had done that, even though the basic limitations of the car are still very much there. Um, Leclerc overqualified it. I think that's. I don't think there's any pretense about that. Um, it's uh, Vettel underqualified it. Um, it couldn't maintain that the place that Vettel had, that um, Leclerc qualified it in in the race. Um, it was graining its front tires quite quite spectacularly. This was a problem that everybody thought they might be facing, um, but it was only Ferrari in the end that really, really got it very bad. And uh, yeah, he he sort of sunk down to the, the car's natural level. And Seb never quite 
got it up to its natural level. He, he got stuck behind Giovinazzi and then spun trying to get past him. And then, you know, he, he ends up, it just sort of spiraled in, in, in a very Seb 2020 way. Um, again, uh, clearly far from happy with himself after the race. And um, it's just, I think they're just counting counting the races down now in, in that partnership and uh, both looking ahead to next season. Yeah, I think he had one of those moments where in sort of sliding across the back of uh, it was Giovinazzi, wasn't it? When he sort of switched from one side to the other quite aggressively. But obviously he, he's had problems with the uh, with the arrow load changing in the, the front wing when around other cars. <laughs> and you sort of thought, no, you should know that's going to happen. And I know we'd rather that wouldn't happen with racing cars. You know, in a normal racing situation, that's not a problem what he did. But because of the aero sensitivity, you kind of think, oh, don't make that mistake, please. But... Yeah, frustrating season for Vettel, especially seeing as uh, I, I was all I was all in favour of a uh, of a triumphant farewell season for for Vettel, but uh, yeah, it's it's really not gone that way. He's ended up down in eleventh place behind uh, Giovinazzi. Now another feature. This is this is bringing back a feature, which is uh, Scott Mitchell's Nico Hulkenberg watch. Uh, perhaps you can pick up the story with Nico Hulkenberg having a having a cup of coffee in Cologne with a friend on Saturday morning. Yeah, do you remember when um, when he got that first call up at Silverstone? There was a photo that he put on uh, on on Twitter. I think he was um, I think he was in an airport. He was in a cafe, and there was a, he had a plate of uh, he had a plate of like pastries or something uh, on his table, and it was just it was the perfect picture because it was decidedly not the sort of food that a Grand Prix driver should be eating. So if anything could encapsulate the the vibe of Nico Hulkenberg in 2020 it was that it was someone who was absolutely not expecting to be in Formula One this year he's um he's uh he's opened the the carb flood floodgates um and it was it was an even uh it was an even bigger extreme for this race because as you say he was having a coffee I think at 11 o'clock in the morning on Saturday so what was that like three hours before qualifying it was due to start or was before um maybe half an hour, an hour before FP3 got the call from Otmar Zafnau saying, we need you. <laughs> um, so it's quite amusing. Um, he he was already due to be at the track later in the day for media commitments with the German broadcaster RTL. Um, as it turns out, uh, instead of talking about the race, he was in it. Um, and I actually think it was uh, his 20th place in qualifying was a bit of a heroic failure being what was it, four temps, four and a half temps off of a Q2 place, despite only doing four flying laps, all of them in qualifying on the soft tyre, um, in a in a car that has been quite substantially upgraded since he drove it at Silverstone, and that threw him a little bit. And then in the race, just a, just a brilliantly patient and professional drive to, to get up into eighth. I mean, to turn, it, even before qualifying, if you'd said, if you can get points, that's a great standing performance in the circumstances to do it from last on the grid that was i think that was i actually think he had obviously the headline grabbing moment of where he qualified at silverstone for the second race the 70th anniversary grand prix i'm actually more impressed with this performance to drop into the car after two months out cold into qualifying and then have no obviously had no long runs or anything he had he just had the, the q1 session so to do that was really good he had a little bit of good fortune on his side the retirements obviously helped uh, the safety car helped him a little bit because he would have had to deal with a couple of uh, drivers who'd made another stop coming at him Giovinazzi was one of them he reckoned he would have been eighth well, without the safety car so that helped him a little bit but even so just really well executed and he along with Gasly got past Grosjean at the restart as well and then 
Giovinazzi couldn't get Grosjean for the for the rest of the race. So, yeah, the, the old racing uh, sharpness is still there. Can we just tick off Lance Stroll's reason for for being absent, Scott? There were various rumours about uh, whether it may have been COVID related, but the, uh, the, the, the it, this was eventually cleared up after some obfuscation. Cleared up is slightly generous, but uh, <laughs> um, I think the confusion just basically comes down to how you interpret like what COVID symptoms are, because there is obviously a lot of crossover between um, the the COVID nineteen symptoms and symptoms for just a uh, flu or the, or a cold or or whatever. So basically, Lance the 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 official story initially was that Lance had fallen ill on Saturday morning but it became clear when Otmar Zafnau the team boss spoke later that day that that wasn't the case because Lance had actually been ill since Russia and I think this is the key distinction because he he was ill from Sochi he didn't he hadn't trained between Sochi and the Nürburgring um so the team were like well we were in Russia the precautions there outside of the circuit were less than they've been in other parts of Europe that we've been to so we're gonna, we we've got to get him tested. There's obviously the mandatory testing anyway, but the the team says that he he had a COVID test on more than one occasion, um, and they kept coming back negative. The last one was on I think Tuesday before he flew, and that came back negative. So because the symptoms already existed, but he'd been uh, cleared of of COVID from the from the test that the team had done, they were like, well, it's not coronavirus; it's the flu or a stomach bug or something. But um, the issue was that basically by the time it got to Saturday morning, I think Lance had spent most of Friday night, Saturday morning on the toilet. Um, poor guy. Even uh, even the, 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 the wealthier first are reduced to nothing when uh, you've got a stomach bug and you're on a toilet. We are all the same, aren't we, in that situation? Um, and he basically was like, after everything that he'd been through physically there, the fact that he hadn't trained since Sochi, he was just spent basically didn't feel capable of doing the race so because he didn't think he could do the race he basically told the team i, d- I don't want to do qualifying either that was a chance obviously to get hulkenberg in in the car um so yeah there was a bit of back and forth i'm i'm led to believe that they did do a, another test just to be 100 sure it wasn't coronavirus and I, I believe that test came back negative so yeah there were te- there, w- there was no issue there's a bit of back and forth over whether or not they were being a little bit, um, not not necessarily like deliberately flouting the rules, but maybe playing a bit fast and loose with interpretation. And maybe the sensible thing or the honourable thing would have been to just do a precautionary test again once Lance was at the track, um, just because these protocols are serious and strict and exist for a reason. So I can see the logic that they're trying to employ and I'm sure Lance did everything he could to get out of doing another test because they're not exactly the most pleasant things from everything I've heard. So, um, yeah, it was just a bit of a, um, bit all over the place. I, I have, uh, I have seen something interesting this evening, which was that, um, in the German media, there's a report that apparently, uh, Alex Albon had a, an inconclusive, uh, coronavirus test and actually, uh, Red Bull spoke to Hulkenberg on Friday, potentially teeing him up, for a, a possible substitution there, but then actually it turned out it was okay. I don't know how uh, ironclad that is, but that, that has apparently come from a, a Marco interview with uh, German or Austrian television, so from the horse's mouth, so to speak, which is quite interesting. Nico Hulkenberg, super sub. I, if I was him, I'd make sure I was near every remaining race this season, conveniently COVID-tested in advance, 
having a coffee in a in a nearby city is a, a very good a very good way to do it because he's but, the, but can the either of you himself. believe that he he wasn't on signed up as racing points reserve after what happened at silverstone you know they, they had access to him he he drove the car what why would you, if you're in that, in that situation why would you not then basically say right Here's a contract for the rest of the season. You're our reserve, our actual reserve driver. What what possible reason is there for that not being done? As far as I can tell, F1 teams seem to think reserve drivers are a, a, a sort of an optional extra. They don't have to worry about too much. I find it slightly strange, given the amount of money and the nothing left to chance, that so many teams are quite relaxed about this whole thing. I can just about understand it in normal times, but in COVID times, it, it, I'd I'd want a, a COVID tested reserve on site ready to plug in at a moment's notice because in a worst case scenario it's not impossible you could lose both drivers and then if you haven't got drivers there don't you look like idiots not getting your car out on track even one car out on track so yeah i'd, I'd like to see that uh, that contingency taken more seriously and yeah let's hope it doesn't happen again this year but uh, but you never know obviously this one doesn't <laughs> seem to have been covid related but it does go to show things can happen uh, ninth place for roman grosjean his first points of the year that matches Hass's best result after magnuson was uh, was in the same oh no of course he was 10th wasn't he in hungary he finished ninth on the road in hungary so uh, yeah that that uh, livens up the battle for eighth in the constructors championship but antonio giovinazzi was was 10th. Grosjean obviously uh, benefiting a little bit from gaining track position late on uh, under the safety car, but did a good job to hold on to the points. And Giovinazzi seems to have kind of woken up again. He he had a bit of a difficult run during the season, but then had a good race at Sochi and uh, good good race here as well, which is uh, which is interesting given we're expecting uh, him to be out of uh, Alfa Romeo next year. And I guess it's one or two swallows doesn't make a summer, does it? In, uh, in his case, Kimi Raikkonen in 12th place, 323 Grand Prix starts now. That's uh, a record-setting uh, number. He kept saying he didn't really worry. He didn't really care about it, and he, he looked like a driver who didn't really care about it because he's had a really good he's had a really good run of form. Generally, obviously, Russia went a bit wrong because of the spinning qualifying, but this was uh, not great. He struggled massively in qualifying, and then made the mistake in battle when he was at the inside of, of Russell, locked up. Then the rear stepped out and uh, flicked Russell. Up in the air, not not Raikkonen's finest hour, was it, Mark? And I guess it's just one of the things that happens when you're in one of the slower cars, doesn't it? You you will have these uh, iffy weekends, I guess. Yeah, and as you're saying, the um, the 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 run of form is um, is, is is with Giovinazzi now. It's um, it's an, at an interesting time when um, you know there's a lot of speculation about which Ferrari junior driver will be in there next year. Um, so let's. Um, yeah, let, let's monitor that because um, yeah, that wasn't a, that that didn't have the the look of someone who's um, got the fire in his belly to to continue. Um, but it might have just been one of those uh, conspiring weekends where everything just just adds up and into to a rubbish weekend. But um, yeah, it didn't look like he was that bothered. It was uh, it was the sort of um, misjudgment that you expect someone more at the start of their career to be making not someone who's literally just notching up more experience than any other driver in the history of of, of formula one he tried to send george into space the williams properly took off it was quite an impressive reaction from the uh from, from the williams um on the subject of giovinazzi and his future <clears throat> i think for giovinazzi and grosjean both quite timely results weren't they just in they, they both probably feel that the writing's on the wall but it's a bit of a 
a little elbow in their team's directions just to say, well, you know, I'm here and this is actually what I'm capable of. It's just a, a, a nice and timely reminder, even if it potentially doesn't really alter their alter their fates. Yeah, and we, you know, we know what Grosjean can do. And he's running well. He had a good race. Obviously, he had the the bit of gravel hit his uh, hit his left index finger on the first lap. In fact, it was flung up by Raikkonen, who uh, who was kind of caught out by the the kind of concertina effect sabotage. You know, the, the, the rear stepped out on him, but uh, yeah, obviously that's uh, Grosjean was a bit concerned he'd broken it. But I think uh, in the final reckoning, he just had a massive bruise on it. So yeah, good effort from him, especially seeing as he was last on the uh, so. But yeah, it's just never a bad thing to to get good results. Even if even if you are on your way out, but one one race, two races isn't going to make a, a fundamental uh, difference, and we still don't know what way Hass are going to go. Uh, they've still got a lengthy uh, a lengthy shortlist, which we'll probably come back to in a moment. But we should just tick off the others. Kevin Magnussen was uh, was thirteenth. He was on the wrong side of of strategy calls, but decent qualifying performance, reasonable showing early in the race. Nicholas Satifi fourteenth in the Williams. Williams just wasn't very fast in race trim. Ultimately, as is often the case. George Russell, the fact he'd been turfed out, you might look at it and think, well, maybe there was a chance lost. But even then, the, the car pace wasn't, uh, wasn't great. And Daniel Kvyat in 15th place, rightly very unhappy with uh, with what he saw as a fairly amateurish, uh, that move by uh, Alban, who just drove across the front of him. That said, Kvyat did create that situation by having his own off just before the, the chicane. So he, he played his, his part in that. Uh, but talking about the, the driver situation, we should talk about the third drivers who had their exciting days on, on Friday, where both Callum Eilert at Haas and Mick Schumacher at Alfa Romeo got to spend 90 minutes of authentic standing around in the garage, not able to go out. I, I like the fact that both of them and uh, also the team bosses were making a great play to say, yeah, well, they, you know, they've really contributed and re- they've really made the most of this experience with being in and around the team, etc. But obviously they didn't get to drive. So <laughs> it, it, it was a shame, wasn't it? And obviously Mick Schumacher in particular, Mark, there was a great deal of expectation because it was home soil, his first proper uh, F1 weekend appearance. Yeah, great shame. And um, there, was a, <laughs> there was a little bit of footage of... Um, Islet on on Friday, just standing in the garage, um, chatting to the engineers and the mechanics, and they they they, they clearly uh, took to him in a in a big way. You know, he 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 seemed to have them rolling around the aisles. So um, he he's got that bit of the um, you know the the equation sorted out. He's he's got the team on side, and um, I'm sure I'm sure Mick made a great impression at Alpha as well. Um, you, you know, they've both been there before, but. Yeah, it just it looked it just you, that little snapshot looked so natural that you thought, right, let's 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 get him in the car and let's let's see because um, I think if he if he'd shown well, the the team would have responded, and um, yeah, hopefully hopefully it can happen. But um, yeah, but Bonato's talking, Ferrari's talking that it, it could be quite difficult to do it um, in the remaining races um, because of the what the the data that they need to collect. Um, for the upgrades and um, uh, maybe maybe in Bahrain we might see them. Um, that's that's I guess the the next feasible um, window. I think the problem for Bahrain is going to be that um, Mick and Callum will have obviously the F two title decider to to focus on. So um, obviously they've got the two races there. So I guess you could do it at the first Bahrain race. Um, you, I don't think you'd want to be. Um, 
jumping between an F1 car and an F2 car on the Bahrain outer circuit the, for the no, season finale. Not. I think you'd want to have uh, all of your focus on that. Um, I, my, I, I think I wonder if the um, the loser from that is going to be Robert Schwartzman, the other of the Ferrari proteges, because Ferrari wanted to had, had planned for all three of those F2 guys to to run in FP1. It was meant to be obviously Callum and Mick at Nurburgring, and then Robert in an un, as yet unnamed team was going to drive in Abu Dhabi but unless uh, unless Ferrari gives up one of its own cars in Abu Dhabi I don't see how they're going to run all three of them because I don't think Alfa or Haas would give up both cars would they I think they'd want to have one of their regulars in for for, for FP1 in Abu Dhabi so I wonder if um, I wonder if Schwartzman's going to have to uh, step aside and if Ferrari does seriously want to get Eilat or Schumacher in, in a car in FP1. Yeah, well, hopefully they'll uh, go. I would like to see Eilat in particular, because I think we expect Mick Schumacher to be in F1 next year. He is, after all, leading F2. Every chance he'll be in the in the Alpha. But Callum Eilat's an interesting case, because obviously last time he was in an F1 car, he had an almighty shunt at uh, Barcelona at Turn 3. And he might have thought that was the last time he's going to get in an, F, in an F1 car, but he's had a really fine season. And, you know, FP1... It's not necess- it's not an opportunity to transform things, but you never know. Once you're in the car, you never know what what impact you can have. Mark talked about the effect he had on the team off off track, so you never know. He might have done the session, done a great job, and they thought actually we're now going to start pushing Gunter Steiner and say actually that this is the guy this is the guy we want in the car. So uh, yeah, just it's good for drivers to have that chance to to influence their destiny. But also, we'd like to see Schwartzman in the car uh, as as well. But uh, yeah, obviously, there's still plenty of intrigue among those drivers. Nico Hulkenberg's still available, Sergio Perez as well. So the, those final seats in the driver market, of course, Mercedes actually is one of them, as Mark said uh, some time ago with uh, Hamilton still not signed up. Still an interesting one to keep an eye on. But overall, has everyone been very excited to have F1 back at the Nürburgring? I've certainly enjoyed... Uh, I got very excited coming into the the track on uh, on Thursday, just because it, it's just the Nurburgring, and it's just it's just it is Grand Prix racing, isn't it? It's just one of those places. Yeah, I love the um, the old the, you know the old pits that they've turned into sort of a museum piece now with the drivers. I, I love that bit because you know you you associate it with the old pictures from the sixties and seventies, and um, just yeah, that tradition is um, is very much part of it. And it's actually it's actually a great track. It's um, it's got some really interesting corners and the interesting cambers and nice, you know, downhills and uphills. It it just flows really nicely. And uh, you'd sort of forgotten about that in the, the time that we've been away from there. So yeah, but, um, the drivers seem to like it. Um, yeah, it, I, I guess uh, middle of summer there rather than you know, late autumn would would be ideal. I um, I enjoyed a couple of times over the course of both days actually getting caught out by the um the helicopter shot that uh captures sort of the the sort of tip of the Nordschleifer um as it goes up to the uh to the fight to the chicane and just you get briefly thrown you're just like why are there cars on track oh it's fine they're, they're going somewhere completely else i think it would have been just to bring back i think something ed uh you've mentioned i think maybe even in the previous podcast we did but um i do kind of wish that they'd had the 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 Eiffel Renan name because it would have been quite cool for Lewis to match Schumacher on the day he emulated the lights of Nuvolari and Caracciola and Rosemeyer and that lot by by winning a race that hasn't been held for Grand Prix cars since um it must have been like the 
pre pre war, like thirty eight, thirty nine, because after that it was all it was just sports car or Formula Two and then DTM, wasn't it? So um, that would have been that would have been quite cool. But apart from that, it was uh, yeah, I thought it was a really successful return for the Nurburgring, and I, I would love to see it on the calendar properly. It's doubly appropriate um, to have. Uh have that that harking back to the history and the Rosemars and that kind of thing because it's Rosemars weather on uh, on Friday with the mist and the fog. He uh, he turned in a legendary performance on the Nordschleifer. I, I'm enjoying calling it the Eiffel Run and thinking there's that. And, and I hope Formula One comes back here because it just it just belongs here. It's it's got so much history and yeah, it, they've got to find a way for it to continue to happen here. And it's difficult because it's not the uh, it's not the the, the wealthiest part of Germany in terms of just having lots of money to throw at Grand Prix, etc. But I think it's just just so important because there's just history everywhere. Uh, you know, the, even the guest house I was staying in had, had loads of signed pictures from people who, who'd stayed there in the past, Alan Prost uh, among them. So, uh, yeah, great historic circuits. Uh, well, thanks very much, Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. If you want to hear more from them, you'll be able to read all sorts on therace.com. And don't forget the hyphen Mark Hughes uh Mark Hughes' race analysis. Uh, my driver ratings will be up by, probably by the time you read this. Scott Mitchell always has a, an unexpected mystery bag of, of of Monday content, which is always good to read. Uh, do check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s and the Gary Anderson F1 show. And also check out our YouTube channel. Just search for The Race. Loads of great video content there. 